You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's bow in prayer for a moment, shall we? Oh, Father, we come here this morning to hear and to heed your word. We invite your spirit to teach us this morning, to guide us in our thoughts, in our understanding. Without his work and without your grace, we are darkened in our mind and our eyes, and we pray for that illuminating work of the Spirit of God today in order that you may equip us and edify us, encourage us and comfort us through your word today. We gather here for that reason, and we ask that you would bless it to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we stopped in the middle of a verse. Actually, we stopped in the middle of a point, and um, we just finished it up. We, we were in Acts chapter 24, and we were looking at some things that happened there in the last um, few verses of Acts 24. We're going to finish up that passage this morning, so you'll need your Bibles open to those verses at the end of Acts chapter 24. These are the events that took place immediately after the trial of the Apostle Paul before the governor, Felix. And the verses are rich for us because we, we get sort of an insight into a couple of different things. First, we, we get a tremendous insight into the type of person that Felix was. We really get to see his character and how he approached things and the type of individual that he was. But then we also get some interesting insights into the character of the Apostle Paul. And I don't think that you could have two more different people in all of the world than Felix and Paul, could you? One was a Jew and one was a Gentile. One was a king and one was a rabbi. One had all of the political power and all of the authoritative power at his disposal that one could possibly wish. And the Apostle Paul had nothing. He was, he was a, politically speaking, a pauper. He had tremendous spiritual power though, didn't he? One is a religious man, Paul, and one is a very irreligious man. One is a very temperate, sober, self-controlled, godly, righteous, humble individual. And then you have Felix, who was very lustful, very greedy, very selfish, very cruel, very brutal. And yet, these two people in the end of Acts chapter 24 come together, and there is this interesting relationship over the course of two years' time that seems to develop between these two men. And as we see what happens between them, we kind of get some interesting insights into Felix and some interesting insights into Paul. We have looked at the prosecution. We have looked at Paul's defense. And now we are looking at the aftermath of that. What was the verdict? What happened after Paul's trial before Felix? Well, that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 24. And we saw that there were really five things that we noticed that concerned Felix. The first was that Felix promised justice to the Apostle Paul, didn't he? Remember that last week? When Lysias comes down, I'll hear your case. I've heard the prosecution. I've heard the defense. And so when Lysias comes down here to Caesarea from Jerusalem, then I will decide your case. Then I'll, then I'll listen to it. Then we'll pick it up again and I'll issue a verdict, a decision. Then Felix provided pr- protection for Paul. Kept him, I think, in the governor's mansion. That's where Paul had been staying before. Paul was to be in custody. He was given a measure of freedom. His friends were allowed unfettered access to him. So you had men like Tychicus and Trophimus and Titus and Luke and Gaius and Aristarchus and Timothy. All of these men were coming in. They were ministering to the Apostle Paul. He had sort of this unfettered access to his friends and really a good degree of freedom. 
which shows to us that Felix didn't believe at all the things that were said by Paul's accusers. Felix didn't believe Paul was a threat or he would have never given him that kind of freedom. And so the, th- the third thing that we noticed was that Felix had the gospel presented to him. That's what we look- looked at last week, and that's sort of where we stopped. Felix, with his wife Drusilla, came in, and they sent for the apostle Paul, and Paul came in, and there was this private consultation with Felix and Drusilla and the apostle Paul. Remember that? And what, did they- what were they discussing? Verse 24 says, They were hearing Paul speak of faith in Christ. Specifically, Luke says, Paul was discussing what? Three things. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. And then we looked at what we can learn from the Apostle Paul from that, from this exchange. And then this week we're going to look at some lessons that we can learn from Felix. And so that's where we pick it up in Acts chapter 24, beginning of verse 24 and 25. We're going to pick up looking at how Felix was presented the gospel. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. What I want you to notice is how Felix became frightened. Interesting word, isn't it? Paul's discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. And Felix starts to sweat. Paul, tell us what you can about faith in Christ. That was why Felix and Drusilla sent for him to begin with. Felix had an exact knowledge about the way. He had an accurate knowledge of Christ, but he wanted to find out more. So he sent for the Apostle Paul. And Paul came in, and Paul begins to explain to him righteousness. Felix, I have basically a three-point outline for you. First point is righteousness. And so Paul begins to explain how righteous God is, and how unrighteous we are. And how that righteousness is going to affect Felix, because Felix doesn't have any righteousness. And Paul begins to explain how Felix is going to stand before that righteous God and how a righteous God views sin. And you can see Felix sort of clear his throat and his eyes begin to shift. And you know how people get nervous and sort of uncomfortable and they start to shift in their chair a little bit or shift in their pew a little bit like some of you guys do on Sunday morning. You sort of shift back and forth and you can tell that a little nervous, a little convicting. And Paul can sense this, and so he moves on. Felix, here's my second point, self-control. And he begins to explain to Felix how everything in Felix's life was the result, all of his sin was the result of lack of self-control. He didn't control his passions, didn't control his lusts, didn't control his cruelty or his brutality, didn't control his quest for power, didn't control himself at all. In fact, Felix would quickly become come to understand that he was not a master of his own lust, but his lust mastered him and that he was darkened in his understanding and unable to submit himself to the law of God, unable to change his spiritual condition, unable to do anything good because the righteousness of God, and now Felix is beginning to see his own lack of self-control as Paul begins to wax eloquent about his sin. The beads of sweat would begin to break out on Felix's forehead, and you would see him start to sort of go like this and ask for a piece of paper to fan himself because he's getting hotter and hotter, and Paul can sense this, and so he moves on to his third point. And what is it? Judgment to come. This is the clincher right here. Felix, God has fixed today on which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Paul could have summed it all up and said, Felix, God is righteous, you are not, and there's judgment coming. Felix was sweating. Luke says he was emphobos. He was frightened. The word means literally thrown into fear. 
That's an ironic picture, isn't it? Here's the governor, Felix. Powerful Felix. All of his magnificent wealth, all of his political power, all of his influence, all of the court and the trappings of the court and all of the trappings of being the governor and the people waiting on you and you've got a beautiful young wife that's a a little less than 20 years old and you've got everything that the world could want. And here stands this little old frail Jewish rabbi named Paul who's a nobody in the world's eyes. And who's trembling before whom? Felix is trembling before Paul. He was frightened. He was thrown into fear. Why was he fearful? Because Felix was a cruel, brutal, violent, lustful, greedy, selfishly ambitious ruler. And he was living in an adulterous relationship with a woman who was just like him. And Paul has been waxing eloquent on the righteousness of God, their lack of self-control, and the judgment that is to come. So what does Felix do? He was thrown into fear, and so he says to Paul, go away for now, and when I have a better, when a, a more opportune time, when I have some more time, I'll call for you. Now, if I were Paul, I would have said, Felix, go away. You sent for me. And I didn't request this meeting, and now you're sending me away? He's trembling before Paul. Paul, just leave. What a convenient excuse it is for him to get out. Was he, did he really have a lack of time? But you don't have time to deal with your soul? You don't have time to deal with spiritual issues. You don't have time to get forgiveness from sin. You don't have time to deal with your high conscience. You have eternal issues on the table. And the king who has rulers who can do all of his work for him says, I don't have time to deal with this right now. It was just a convenient excuse for Felix to put off the Apostle Paul. What I want you to notice here in how Paul handles Felix, do you notice how Paul addresses his conscience? Do you notice that? Do you notice how Paul doesn't talk about the love of God and all these flowery and great things about being a Christian. He addresses Felix's conscience. The Apostle Paul wants Felix to feel the heat of his conscience. And his conscience is aroused. His conscience is sort of kicked into action. It's quickened. It's brought to life, so to speak. And it begins to bear down on Felix. And he feels all of this guilt. Why? Because he's guilty. And Paul wants his conscience to do what God intended the conscience to do, which is to accuse fallen man. So that we stand and we feel guilty before God. Here's a little witnessing tip for you. When you witness to somebody, address what you say to their conscience. Every man knows they stand guilty before God. Every man knows that deep down in their heart that they have suppressed the truth. And they may deny it, but they know it. They know it intellectually. They know it morally. They know it way down in the recesses of their being. And the Apostle Paul goes right at Felix's conscience. And it is his conscience that is aroused. It is his conscience that begins to accuse him and condemn him. But notice this. Although his conscience was aroused, was he saved? Never was, was he? Never was. He put off the Apostle Paul. Felix was disturbed by what Paul said. Now listen to this. Do you think Felix believed 100% everything Paul was saying? Do you think he believed what Paul was saying was true? Sure he did. If he didn't believe it, he wouldn't be scared. You can have bring a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness in here, or a New Ager or a Muslim, and they can tell me everything about the religion and what they believe the future holds, but I don't have any reason to believe that they're even close to being accurate. I have no reason to believe that they're telling me the truth or that what they're saying is accurate or true. And I'm not going to fear consequences of not being a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness or a Muslim. Why? Because I don't believe that they're, what they're telling me is true. Do you think Felix believed what Paul was telling him was true? Absolutely he did. If he didn't believe it, he wouldn't have been fearful. 
He is fearful because he is utterly convinced that he's standing in the presence of a man of God who's telling him the truth, and Felix is frightened over the consequences of his sin. He's startled by the Word of God. He's frightened over his conscience and his guilt and what he knows to be true. But he won't embrace grace. He won't turn from the truth. He won't repent of his sin. He won't turn to Christ. He doesn't want any of that. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this passage, said this, Many are startled by the Word of God who are not effectually changed by it. Many are startled by the Word of God who are not effectually changed by it. He went on to say, Many people fear of the consequences of their sin, yet they continue in league and in love with their sin. You know people like that, don't you? They know what the truth is, because you've told it to them. You've shared it with them. They're convinced that what you say is true. They know that God is righteous. They know that they are not. They know that there's judgment coming, but they love their sin more than anything else, and they won't turn to Christ. They won't embrace grace at all. Felix shows to us the, the tragedy of missed opportunities. Friends, think, think about this for a second. Eternity is hanging in the balance. Your conscience is hot upon you. It has been quickened and brought to life by the truth that Paul has shared. It is convicting you. It is convincing you. It is accusing you. You stand guilty and you're frightened by the consequences of your sin. And here stands not some country bumpkin preacher, not you and I, but Paul the Apostle. And Felix has the opportunity to repent. He has the opportunity to believe, but does he? He says to Paul, go away for the time. When I have time, then I'll call for you. But Felix never called for him, did he? And he missed the opportunity to repent. Listen, Saul of Tarsus fell down on the Damascus road and he was in fear and he trembled and he repented and he came to faith in Christ. Do you remember the Philippian jailer came in before Paul and Silas falling down trembling? What must I do to be saved? Felix has the same emotional reaction, the same the heat of conscience upon him, but what does he do? Go away for now. If Felix had only asked, Paul, what must I do to escape coming judgment? If he had only asked that question, but he doesn't ask that question, does he? Go away for the time. I'll call you when it's a better time. You see, Felix is content to have the Word of God affect his mind, but he doesn't want the Word of God to reform his life. He's content to have the truth impact his intellect, but not his conduct, his, his mind, but not his morals. And so as the Apostle Paul brings the truth to bear on his life, on his morals, on his conduct, on his judgment, Felix has enough of it. He doesn't want any more of the Apostle Paul. And so he puts him off. Listen, friends, Felix makes a tragic assumption here, and I want you to see this tragic assumption. Here's the tragic assumption, and this is a horrible position to be in. The horrible position to be in is to be in a position where you know the truth, but you will not submit yourself to the truth. That is disastrous. That is spiritually tragic. And here's Felix. He has heard the truth. He knows the truth. He knows what Paul has told him is true. And he has opportunity to repent. He has this opportunity to trust Christ, but he does not submit. He does not bring himself or yield himself under the truth of Christ's claims. And here's the horrible assumption. Felix makes the horrible assumption of assuming that the grace of God would be available for him to take at his own leisure. Catch that? He assumed that the grace of God would be available for him to take at his own leisure. And you know people like that. Maybe some of you are sitting here this morning and that's you. 
You think, well, I'll repent after I've enjoyed the pleasures of sin for a season. I'll repent when I get older. I'll turn once my kids are gone. I'll invest in spiritual things once I get sort of beyond this stage of life. Once I retire, then I'll have it all wrapped up. Then I'll really serve the Lord. Then I'll deal with my soul's condition. I feel guilt right now, but I enjoy this life, and I figure I've got 30 more years, and so I'm going to continue like this for 30 more years. And then when I'm sort of over uh, uh, enjoying myself and my sin, then I'll repent, then I'll turn to God. And you know what happens? Having spurned a hot conscience and having ignored the opportunity for grace, and having put it off for another time, you find that that other time comes, and guess what? Your heart is hardened. And you've lost the opportunity. That's what happened with Felix. Right on the brink. Felix says, no, we'll deal with it later. And friends, for Felix, be warned, for Felix, that more opportune time never came. And for you, that more opportune time might never come. Felix was presented the Gospel. The fourth thing we see is in verse 26, and that is that Felix perverted justice. Look at it. At the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given to him by Paul. Therefore, he used to send for him quite often and converse with him. He was hoping that Paul would bring him some money. Now, this is ironic to me. This is an amazing thought, is it not? Paul has just confronted him with righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. And he has felt the heat of his conscience. And he still is hoping to receive a bribe from the Apostle Paul. Is that not amazing? He doesn't repent. And he keeps bringing the Apostle Paul back in. After being confronted with all of that, he's still hoping for a bribe. Bribes were just as illegal in Paul's day as they were common. Do you remember Lysias said, I obtained my citizenship with what? Large sum of money. He got his, he could buy citizenship. It was illegal to buy Roman citizenship. But if you had money, you could buy almost anything. You could not find a Roman official, a Roman governor, a city official, a city administrator, or anybody who was under the payment of Rome for their services as an official. You could not find one who could not be bought. Anybody could be bought for any price. Felix is just like Festus, just like Agrippa, just like Herod, just like anybody else, any other Roman official. And he is hoping for a little bit of money. And Paul has the opportunity to sort of Grease the wheels of justice, if you will, if he were to just bribe Felix. And that's what Felix is hoping for. Now, what would give Felix the idea that the Apostle Paul had enough money to bribe him for his release? What would give Felix that idea? When Paul came back to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, what was he carrying with him? Remember what it was? It was the offering. A large sum of money. He had all of those men, Tychicus, Trophimus, Titus, and all those guys who were there to help transport this large offering from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia back to Jerusalem. The amount of that offering and the fact of that offering now is a matter of public record. It was brought up at the trial when Paul said back in his defense, I came to my nation after many years to present alms and offerings to my people in the temple. He had brought that up at the trial. Felix knows that that's what Paul had. Felix knows that the Apostle Paul has access to a large amount of money. And furthermore, his doctor, Luke, keeps coming in and seeing him from time to time. All of these people are bringing resources and ministering to the Apostle Paul. And Felix sees that and he sets his eye upon it. And he knows that the Apostle Paul, all he would have to do is say the word. And churches all over the area would raise money. Now, do you think that if the churches found out, hey, we could get Paul released from prison and he could go to Rome and on to Spain to evangelize, all we need to do is raise a little bit of money to get Paul released from prison. Do you think that the money could come in? 
You think the money would come in? The money would pour in. Paul had founded dozens of churches. To church, any one of those churches alone would have been able to raise whatever amount of money Felix wanted. A lot of the churches that Paul founded because they were in big cities and big metropolitan areas were very affluent churches. They had raised a massive amount of money to support the saints back in Jerusalem. If Paul had agreed to it, Felix could have named his price, the word would have gone out, the money would have been raised, it would have come in, and Paul would have been released. And Luke says that Felix used to call for him quite often. Quite often. What does that mean? Once a week? Twice a week? A few times a month? It's quite often, whatever it is. I don't know. Maybe he had lunch with the Apostle Paul every once in a while. And he keeps bringing the Apostle Paul in and standing in before him and sort of conversing with him a little bit, feeling him out a little bit, see how Paul's liking his imprisonment. You can imagine how the conversations would go. Paul, are you enjoying being in custody? Well, it's better than being in Jerusalem, but no, not really. I'd sure rather be traveling. Yeah, I know, I hear that you kind of have it on your heart to go to Rome, don't you? Yeah, and eventually to after Rome to Spain, like to do that. Well, tell me, Paul, how is it that you raise money for some of these trips? I mean, if you, you know, say, for instance, hypothetically, I were to release you today, would you have the resources right now to make the trip to Rome and eventually to Spain? Do, do Christians support you and, and bring you money? Um, if I were to release you now, hypothetically speaking, do you have money? You see how that would go, right? Listen, the Apostle Paul knew what Felix was up to. Luke knew what Felix was up to. Everybody knew what Felix was up to. But Paul didn't take the bait. Why? Giving a bribe was illegal, friends. It was illegal. He's not going to compromise his integrity. How would that look if the Apostle Paul, after speaking to Felix of righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, then gave a bribe, broke the law to get out of prison? How would that look? I had a guy that know that I, I had a guy call me. Um, this is probably about a year ago now. He was in prison down in Idaho somewhere, and he called me up one evening and he said, um, "Look, I'm in prison. You know my situation. Um, I need to. It wasn't in prison. Sorry, it was a jail because he could get out on uh, what do you call it? bail, offer a bail. And my bail set at twenty five thousand or whatever. It was an astronomical amount, and I hadn't heard from him in years. And he called me up and said, "Would you be willing to uh, sort of put up my bail and?" and help me out so I can get out and start supporting my family. And then he gave me this big tale about how I I, um, I know that what I need is God in my life, and I know that it's God, not following God that's responsible for all of my evils and my woes and where I'm at today. And the first thing I want to do once I get out of jail is come up to Sandpoint, and uh, I want to talk with you and get together and have you give me some counsel. I need to get my life back on track with God. And this was the whole sad story. And I listened to this, this collect call from jail. And if you've ever received one of those, then you know that <laughs> those are ching-ching, those are big money. And uh, so I listened to this whole sad tale, and I said, "Look, look, man, I don't, I don't have that kind of money to offer you, and I don't have that. Well, can't you sign over, you know, your house or your car or your firstborn or something to put it up and let me get out?" And I said, uh, "Scripture says that you should not become surety for another man's debt, and the Book of Proverbs says that I would be in sin if I, if I leveraged my family to help you as, as much as helping you might be a good thing, I would be in sin to do that." And he kind of talked around it and, well, you know, it's, it's really not that big of a deal. And I, I said, look, bottom line is that I don't have the money and I don't know you that well and I'm not going to put up my family to get you out of hock. And then I said to him, how would it look if you came up to Sandpoint first thing after you got out of prison, sat down in my office, and I began to talk to you about the necessity of obeying Scripture and walking with God and obeying Him 
And meanwhile, I'm in sin because I violated Scripture by getting you out of hock to begin with. How would that look? It's just silent on the other end of the phone. Now, that's not because I'm wise or I came up with a great example or that I'm holy or anything like that. But friends, that's exactly what Paul's doing here. How would it look for the Apostle Paul to speak of righteousness, judgment, to come and self-control, and then to offer Felix a bribe to get out of prison? And you know as well as I do that you and I sitting in that same position as Paul was in could think of a hundred justifications for giving the bribe. This is the environment in which I live. This is the culture that I live in. And so if I've got to sort of grease the wheels to make sure that justice is done, then I'll make sure that justice is done. And I've got to do what I can to get myself released from prison. And it's just a small thing. It's just a bribe. It's just a little bit of money. I'll confess when I'm, when I'm done with it. And the Lord knows my desires are pure and I can do more good for Him on the outside than I can here on the inside. All the justifications that you and I could come up with. But the Apostle Paul, listen, for two years sat there and Felix would bring him in quite often just to feel his purse. Are you willing to give up any of that, Paul? All right, go back in for a week or two. Then he comes back out again, feels his purse. How's that? You got any money, Paul? How's life treating you? Would you like to be out? But the Apostle Paul does not compromise his integrity even for something as good as getting out of prison and going on to serve him. Because Paul understands that God is sovereign and at any minute he could be released from prison. That's within God's control. But Felix perverted justice. Third thing I want you to notice is how Felix postponed a decision. Postponed a decision. Look at verse 27. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. For two years had passed. Let's just stop there for a second. Two years. Friends, two years. That's a long time, is it not? Even to stay in the governor's mansion with the centurion assigned to you, that's a long time. Even to become and be allowed to have friends come and visit you any time of the day or night and not be kept from ministering to you, two years is a long time, isn't it? But there's something going on during these two years that I want to make you aware of. Now, as we've gone through the book of Acts from time to time, I've told you about details that are going on outside, things that are happening. And one of the things that I've tried to fill in for us as we've gone through Acts is to point out when in the narrative or when in this sort of story some of the Bible books were written. And we have another book that fits into the narrative right here at the end of chapter 24 before chapter 25. So if you are in the habit of doing so, you're going to want a pen or a pencil because I want you to do something. I want you to take note of the book that's written at the end of chapter 24. I want you to first underline the word two years and then in the margin or someplace right there connected to the, the phrase two years, I want you to take note that Luke was written. Luke was written, the Gospel Luke. Now you thought I was going to say Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or Philemon, First and Second Timothy. You thought I was going to say something by Paul, didn't you? No, this is when the Gospel of Luke was written. Now, how do I know? Oh, by the way, the, the date here after this two years is spring of A.D. 60. So the date is 60. Now, when Paul finished his third missionary journey, it was the spring of A.D. 58. And so Paul went back to Jerusalem and all of these events and landed in Caesarea there for two years. By the time Felix is removed from power, by the time these events happen at the end of chapter 24, two years have passed, so it's 60 A.D. And during that two years' time, Luke was written. How do I know that? Well, I want you to see some words at the beginning of 
Luke's gospel, how he introduces his gospel. We'll put together a few pieces here and sort of bring all this together. So I want you to do something that I don't ask you to do very often, which is keep your finger here in Acts 24 and turn back to the beginning of the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1. Now I know that some of you here are utterly bored to tears by details like this. Others of you here just love these little details like this and if um, if you're one that's bored to tears at times like this, then just you can sort of take a nap for a second and come back to when you hear all of us turn back to Acts chapter 24. But for those of you who like to find out how your New Testament came to be written, turn to Luke chapter 1. I want you to read, we're just going to read the first four verses, and I want to highlight a couple of things that Luke says there. Inasmuch as may have undertaken, sorry, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught in the days of Herod the king. And then he goes on and he gives him the exact chronological, in order, eyewitness, carefully investigated account that he does in the Gospel of Luke. Now, what I want you to notice is how Luke begins his first book, which is the Gospel of Luke, by saying, many have undertaken to compile an account of the things which have been accomplished among us. In other words, Luke is recognizing there were other Gospels that have been written, other accounts of the Lord Jesus' life that were circulating by the time that he wrote. Many people had done this, but Luke says, I'm doing something different. I'm going back and I've begun to lay out in consecutive order, interviewing eyewitnesses to bring to you this account in, in exact truth the things that have been accomplished among us. Now we know that Matthew and Mark were both written before Luke. Not from those words, but from New Testament history and textual evidence. Mark was likely the first book written, then Matthew, the first gospel written, I should say. Matthew was likely the first gospel. Okay, let's try this again. I got 66 books I'm trying to keep track in my head. Mark was the first gospel written. After that, Matthew. And now, the gospel of Luke. So Luke is the third. There were many other accounts, and Luke says, mine is one in a long train of accounts. Second, I want you to notice what Luke identifies as his primary sources. Notice who it is? Eyewitnesses and servants of the Word. Eyewitnesses to the events in the life of the Lord Jesus and servants of the Word. Now, here's the important detail. Luke was not a Jew. Luke did not grow up in Jerusalem. Luke was not in Palestine during the life of the Lord Jesus. Luke was a Gentile. He was a physician who was likely born and raised in the city of Philippi. When Paul met him, it was on his second missionary journey. Do you remember as he was going through Asia and he got to the city of Troas right before they had the Macedonian vision? That's when Paul met Luke, probably was the one that led Luke to faith in Christ. And then Luke accompanied him for the rest of this journey. Now, at no time from the book of Acts, at no time from what we know of in the life of Dr. Luke, was there ever an opportunity for him to investigate and to interview eyewitnesses to the events of the life of the Lord Jesus and servants of the Word except for during these two years. Because at the end of these two years, Luke leaves with Paul on the ship for Rome. And as far as we know, Luke never got back to Jerusalem. In fact, we're almost certain he didn't. He was with Paul until Paul was executed. Luke traveled with him. There is only one period of time in all of Luke's life in which Luke had access to eyewitnesses of the life of the Lord Jesus. And when was it? 
it was while Paul was in prison in Caesarea, Luke could go into the land of, uh, go into the city of Jerusalem, go on the places that uh, the Lord Jesus traveled and begin to investigate those accounts. Now the book of Acts, now which was written first, Luke or Acts? Do you remember? Luke was written first, Acts is the sequel. I mean, it, it kind of follows chronologically because Luke, Luke begins Luke by saying, I'm giving you an account of everything, and then he begins the book of Acts by saying, okay, in my previous account, which is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you these things, Theophilus, and now here is what the Lord Jesus continued to accomplish among us. So Acts was written after Luke. Acts was only written just a little over two years after after Paul's release from Caesarea. So you get to the end of Acts 24, and it's only about two years in the book of Acts is written, at the end of Acts chapter 28. Well, Luke was written before that. When was it written? Sometime during these two years. At least during these two years, Luke was walking around and he was interviewing the people who were there. Can you imagine Luke going and interviewing Mary, the mother of Jesus? She would have been late 70s by this point. Maybe she was dead. I don't know if she was alive or not. But she could have very easily have been alive. Mary Magdalene would have been alive. Peter and John and Andrew and the other apostles. He could have interviewed Zacchaeus. Remember, Luke writes about Zacchaeus. Maybe met him at a... Christian function in the church in Jerusalem. Oh, you're Zacchaeus. Man, nice to meet you, little guy. And tell me about your story. Well, I was a wee little guy and I climbed up in the sycamore tree and probably gave, gave the lyrics to the song you sing in Sunday school. He could have interviewed some of the 5,000 people that were there when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish and fed the 5,000. Could have interviewed John the Baptist's relatives and friends who were eyewitnesses to those events. Luke says, the people who provided the information for my gospel were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. When did Luke gather that information? During these two years, while he was just outside Jerusalem, only two days travel away, he had unfettered access to all of those people, and Luke was compiling the information. Do you notice the title, Most Excellent Theophilus? That's a title that's used for a Roman official, somebody in the government, somebody of high ranking and note within the Roman government. Do you think it's possible that while Paul was staying in the uh, governor's mansion, conversing with Felix on a regular basis, that he ran into a guy named Theophilus, and Most Excellent Theophilus, and that Luke and Paul started exchanging a conversation with him and trying to lead him to the Lord. And Luke said, you know what I don't think I'm going to do? I'm going to write a gospel. Just sort of, I'm going to write a story that's just an account of all of the life of the Lord Jesus. And so he goes and he begins to research that. And he puts together his gospel during this two-year period of time. Now, why do I share that with you? Two reasons. First, so that you can kind of have an idea or an understanding that by the year 60 A.D., we had three reliable eyewitness accounts of the life of the Lord Jesus in circulation already published. So the next time that some skeptic slash agnostic slash atheist slash um, doubter comes up to you who's a Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, wing nut, fruit loop freak and says you can't trust the Gospels because they were all written hundreds of years after the life of the Lord Jesus. You know better, don't you? You know that within 30 years of the life of the Lord Jesus you had three eyewitness accounts who were circulating because Luke writes his about 60 A.D. And he makes note of others who are already circulating. And you can say to somebody very graciously, you don't want to call him a Dan Brown, Da Vinci Code, wingnut, Fruit Loop freak, but you could say to them, you know, the fact that you say that, I understand where you might have got that information. It's kind of the conventional wisdom, but the truth is that it shows that you've never read your New Testament. Because if you read your New Testament and you understand Luke and you understand some of the people who wrote it, then you know it's impossible for those Gospels to have been written any time after 70 A.D. at the latest. And three of them were written before 60 A.D. Second reason I share that with you is so that you can sort of have an understanding of how your New Testament came together. 
And friends, I also want you to see this. I want you to see that those two years, they weren't wasted, were they? And we look at those two years and we say, what wasted time? That's wasted time. What opportunity? Paul could have been traveling, could have been preaching. He's got Spain on his docket. Spain is on his travel itinerary. He wants to go to Spain and Rome. And here's the world gone nuts, out of control, and Paul's locked up in prison for two years. Well, friends, during those two years, God was doing something. God was writing Luke, and he was preparing to write Acts. That's, by the way, also where Luke got all the information for the early chapters of Acts. Second half of the book of Acts were the, the Apostle Paul's part. He would have had Paul to give him that information, right? Paul was his eyewitness to the things that took place between Acts 13 and 28. But what about the first 12 chapters? Who did Luke have access to? Well, right there in Caesarea is Philip, who was in Jerusalem, right? That would have covered the Ethiopian eunuch and all those stories. Who else was in Caesarea that Luke would have had access to for the early chapters of the book of Acts? Cornelius was in Caesarea. So what's Luke doing during those two years? He's gathering information for the Gospel of Luke and to compile and for the book of Acts. And that's what he spends his time doing. Now flip back to Acts chapter 24. And for those of you who took me up on the nap option, now is your time to sort of come back to us. Acts chapter 24. After two years had passed, that's when Luke is written, that's when Luke is researched. Take note of that. Remember that. And also take note somewhere, at least in your mind or in the margin, that Matthew and Mark had already been written by that time. After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. Now, Felix was not succeeded by Porcius Festus because Felix died. Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus because Felix was incompetent, terribly incompetent. Um, here's what happened. Here's how Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. There was something that happened during that two-year period of time. In fact, right close to the end of that two-year period of time. There was in Caesarea two groups of people, Gentiles and Jews. Now, they hated each other, which Gentiles and Jews always hated each other. No matter what city you're talking about, you could always say there were Jews and there were Gentiles and they hated each other. That's how the story always begins. In Caesarea, you had Jews and Gentiles who hated each other. It's kind of like once upon a time. That's how every fairy tale begins. Every story in every city begins with Jews and Gentiles hating each other. In the city of Caesarea, these two camps. Now, there became a dispute over whose city Caesarea was. The Jews said, well, Herod the Great built Caesarea, and he was a Jew, and he built it for the Jews. And because as Jews we own all of most of the industry and the wealth in the city, the city of Caesarea belongs to us. The Gentiles, the Syrians, didn't believe that at all. In fact, they said, Herod the Great may have been a Jew, but he built this city for Gentiles. And we're Gentiles. And we have our military here and our military presence here in the governor's mansion. And we control the power. The city belongs to us. And the Jews said, no, the city doesn't belong to you. It belongs to us. And the Gentiles said, no, the city doesn't belong to you. It belongs to us. And back and forth it goes. And finally they start throwing rocks at each other. And then Felix had to come in and militarily put down that revolt. Now, Try, if you will, for just a second, open up your imagination and try and imagine Jews and non-Jews in the city, in the land of Israel, fighting over land, throwing rocks at each other. Can you possibly imagine that? See, I don't have to imagine that. I see it every evening when I turn on the evening news. Exactly you do. This has been happening for 2,000 years. Jews and non-Jews fighting over land in Israel, throwing rocks at each other. That's what happened in Felix's day. It's amazing how the players change, but the, the story script never does, does it? It's like a Jewish Groundhog Day. It's the same thing over and over again. just keeps going on. That's what was happening in Felix's day. Well, Felix came in with his military and just crushed the revolt. And he brutally murdered a, a massive amount of Jews. He, he picked out the ones who were wealthy and who had land 
and who had assets and whom he knew were storing those assets in their homes. And he seized their homes. He seized their properties. He murdered their families. I mean, he just crushed the revolt. It was typical Felix. He was just brutal and bloodthirsty and greedy, and that's what he did. And he put it down. Well, Felix was already on probation with Rome. And Nero had already given him a warning. And under Felix's administration, the, the, the province had continued to degenerate and go from bad to worse and bad to worse and bad to worse. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. After that revolt, a group of Jews took off and they went to Rome. They brought accusations against Felix. And Nero said, enough is enough. He recalled Felix from power and he sent out Porcius Festus to take control. And Felix was on his way back to Rome. Now look at verse 27. It says he was succeeded by Porcius Festus and wishing to do the Jews a favor. What's that mean? What's that about? Well, he's got a bunch of Jews who are in Rome waiting for Felix to arrive so they can bring accusations against him before Nero. And Felix knows this. And as he's leaving, it would have been customary for Felix to deal with all of the unresolved cases on his docket, to leave nothing for the next emperor and, and, and what, or next uh, ruler, governor. When a ruler or a governor was leaving his administration or his district, he would just rule on all of the outstanding cases and sort of wipe the slate clean for the next guy. But Felix doesn't do that. You know what Felix does? Wanting to do the Jews a favor. Why is he wanting to do the Jews a favor? He's trying to curry favor with the Jews because the Jews are bringing accusations against him in Rome. He's politically posturing himself to make it easier on him when he stands before Nero. Because he understands there's Jews back there, and when I get back there, maybe I'll meet with them and say, hey, remember that pest, that guy that you wanted to kill? Well, I turned his case over to Festus. And so you can go back and maybe have another shot at getting your hands on Paul. He's hoping that's going to curry him some favor. And so he leaves it. And Paul becomes the victim of political pandering, political posturing, and a a guy's self-seeking search for an, an opportunity. And that's what Paul gets. And when news came that Felix was going to leave and that it was going to be handed over to somebody else, Paul would have rightly thought to himself, okay, he's going to rule on my case. He's leaving office. That's what they do. They rule on my case. We can expect a verdict to be handed down. Nope. Felix is up and he's gone. And Paul's left in prison. Now, friends, you can look at the events at Acts chapter 24 as all of this wraps up and you can see it one of two ways. First, you can look at all of this and say, man, this is the story of... of of justice gone amok. This is the story of something insane, things out of control. The Apostle Paul is denied justice because justice was delayed. It was never given to him. And Felix was brutal and he was cruel. And Paul was robbed of his civil rights. He was robbed of his standing before Caesar. He was robbed of his opportunity for justice. None of that stuff was given to the Apostle Paul. And here he is kept up in custody for two long years and oppressed that poor guy. And you and I would have sat there for those two years and gone utterly insane thinking that we had been done wrong. Or you could look at this and say, you know what? I see the hand of God all over this. For two years, he gave Luke opportunity to write his Gospel, to prepare to write the book of Acts. Without those two years, we wouldn't have, likely, the Gospel of Luke, and we probably wouldn't have Acts in its current form, if at all. The hand of God is on this. You can look at this and say, look, it's the Lord who raises up kings, and it's the Lord who puts down kings. I think that's the way Paul viewed it. Just patiently, for two years, the Apostle Paul sat there and took what came to him, taking the opportunities that came his way, not compromising his integrity, not complaining about his situation, but waiting for God to move on his behalf and for God to work in the heart of a king. Because Paul understood something. If God has ordained the end, friends, 
He has not left the means up to chance. If God has ordained the ends, He has not left the means up to chance. So after two years, two long years, when God gets ready to move Paul from Caesarea to Rome, because remember, that was the promise. You remember that? As you've testified for me in Jerusalem, I'm going to send you to Rome. That was the promise. The Lord didn't say when. Paul didn't know he was going to have to wait two years for this. But when the time comes to move Paul from Caesarea to Rome, God just simply says, Felix, your time is up. Takes him out. Festus, you're in. Changes rulers. And here we go all over again. Here we go all over again. Now see, listen. Paul may have had a good relationship with Felix, and I think he did. But when he stands before Festus, the whole game has changed. It's different. He doesn't have the same relationship with Festus that he did with Felix. And you're going to see how the Lord works that out next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for this time that we have had before your word. We thank you for what we learn. We thank you for what we learn about your grace and about dealing with eternal issues. And we pray that you would give us the grace to respond to truth and to bring ourselves under it, not to be like Felix, to harden our hearts and lose the opportunity of grace. Thank you for your word and our time here in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.